I moved to New Britain, Connecticut for a while to help take care of my grandfather, who was dying of brain cancer. He was a psychiatrist, the first ever to practice in New Britain, a city 11 miles from Hartford that was an industrial engine of New England and an economic boom town. He was 1935 when he began. And for the next 30 years, my grandfather, Dr. Philip Morad, was New Britain's only psychiatrist. He practiced psychiatry for over 60 years, and he only retired because of that tumor that was riddling his brain. I was there for several months, and I was as faithful a witness as I could be as he watched with horror as his faculties fell from him. I was just 24, and he was 92. I didn't know who I was yet, but I was there, and maybe that was enough to make him want to try to explain to me what his life was supposed to mean and how he was afraid that he'd gotten it all wrong. One of the bitterest aspects of how he died is that right at the point in which he felt compelled to examine his life and to try to live whatever time he had left in authenticity, That was precisely the point at which he could no longer sustain a thought or fill in a memory enough to make sense of anything. Until the very end, he remained aware of all the faculties he'd lost and how cruelly he'd been reduced. His agile brain, which he'd always seen as what separated him from other men, was increasingly cruel to him until the end. There was some moment in one of those endless days I spent trying to help him hold together the pieces he still recognized of himself. Some precise moment on one of those endless days at which my knowledge of his life passed his own. I took on the project of trying to get his physical effects and his papers in order. And when I found interesting fragments of his past, I'd bring them to him. And I try to help him make sense of them and reintegrate them into his self. Do you remember this, Granddad? This is part of you, too. This worked less and less each day. Everything of the past became a mystery to him, which embarrassed him and became a source of anxiety. But as he became more estranged from his own past, I kept finding new artifacts that opened his past up and filled in and shaded a complex picture that fascinated me. I found case notes on patients going back to the 30s. I found old photographs. I found mementos from when he was a boy and he had to flee with his mother and his little brother from their village in northern Persia. I found a good deal of his correspondence. 
And I found an envelope, postmarked in 1944, that was stuffed with every story of suicide or attempted suicide in New Britain from April 1941 through June 1948. I counted the clippings. There were 124 of them. They fascinated me and they overwhelmed me. It took me 10 years before I had the strength or the will or whatever to even put them in order. It took me 10 years, but when I finally put my grandfather's collection of suicide stories in order, I thought I could read them more as he had read them. I could read them as they'd come to him. Each time he saw a suicide story, he'd cut it out or tear it out, and he put it on top of a slowly growing mound of stories in a side drawer in his desk. If I read them in the order that he'd done that, Maybe I could see, as he saw, how the will to die progressively bloomed out into suicide over seven years, growing and changing in what forms it took. Maybe I could see the same trends he saw in who was doing it and where and with what psychological tones. If I read them in order, and if I truly felt the relief of the gaps of weeks or months between suicides, as much as I felt the sudden horrible rushes of suicide stories that felt linked to each other, as if they'd inspired each other, even subconsciously, or as if they were separate emanations of some common despair that suddenly erupted into action. If I read them that way, as he had read them, I thought... I might apprehend the greater story of that seven-year span of suicides. That I could read in its rhythms and its shifts of content and color the common story beneath all of these stories. That's what I thought he was trying to read, that deeper story. So I read them in order, and then I cataloged them, and I plotted them on a map of New Britain, a dot for each reported suicidal act. Dots appearing over time in unpredictable leaps and occasional clusters filling in the bends and grids of streets. The dots described a dynamic map of the geography of suicide from 1941 to 1948 in New Britain. It was a geography of the will to die, a geography of final despair. But it was a geography that repressed itself as it grew a geography that no one talked about and that immediately tried to fade from view. I've gone back there several times over the past 10 years. I've gone back to see my great aunt Semi and my great aunt Nancy to do research in the local history room at the New Britain Public Library and to just explore around town. I'd drive my rental car around, stop and get out, walk around some, and then get back into my car to circle the block again, trying to see a building or a neighborhood as it was decades ago, thinking of the businesses that had long ago failed or moved, and imagining them superimposed over the businesses or the vacant storefronts 
that are there now. But most of all, I looked at all those big, square-fronted houses with pitched roofs and blank faces where I knew that some 60 years before, someone had tried to end her life. I imagined those houses stripped of those 60 years and the new siding or the new carport, or I superimposed onto them the external stairways that I knew had been torn down. I studied them. I walked or slowly drove by those big, square-fronted houses with pitched roofs that are crowded together in neighborhoods all over New Britain. What I'm trying to say is that I've stood outside a lot of houses and imagined the suicides they'd held. Those houses were usually deep and wide and three stories tall, and they housed several families or several men or several women all crowded together into each of several rooms. And over the years, I've learned how to read the street-level geography of suicide into the various rooms and various depths from the fronts of those apartment buildings and those big square-fronted houses. And now I walk around my neighborhood in Portland, Oregon, and I know there's a deeply layered geography of suicide all around me that's invisible to me. Each street everywhere has its own history of the will to die. Each street in every block. Furthermore, the house where my wife and I now live, I know, was a cheap, crowded rental for decades. And my best guess is that at least 100 people have lived in it over its 94 years. So our own house has a complex geography of suicide that is invisible to us, even as we live in its midst. What can we do? My wife and I imbue the house as best we can with the will to live. I don't know this geography that surrounds me, but I've learned something of the geography of suicide of New Britain, Connecticut, 3,000 miles away over a seven-year period, 30 years before I was born. I read the stories in order as my grandfather read them, and I think I've learned how to read aspects of the greater story of the complexity of suicide over those seven years. I've learned how to see some of its patterns and its variations, but I still don't know why my grandfather, Dr. Morad, first felt compelled to save a suicide story and why it was the one that it was. The first suicide he saved was from the Tuesday, April 8, 1941 issue of the New Britain Herald, and I found it in two pieces that he'd torn out quickly against a straight edge. Strange accident, blamed for death. Man opens gas jet with head, unable to straighten up. Found accidentally overcome by illuminating gas fumes last night at his home. John B. Smith, age 72, of 23 Cedar Street, retired restaurateur, died despite efforts made by police to revive him. Michael O'Neill, a rumor at the home, found the body in the kitchen lying near the hot water heater and tank. In reconstructing the death, police said that circumstances and coincidences involved in the case were unusual. 
Sergeant Daniel J. Cosgrove and Policeman William J. McCarthy, Hanford Dart, and Rosario continued on page two. That was a four and a half inch column wide strip. A separate strip that was a foot long and had been folded in half says, Strange accident blamed for death continued from first page. Tata responded when police received the call and attempted to revive Mr. Smith for some time before the arrival of Dr. Vincent J. Squillicote, who pronounced him dead. Police and Dr. John Purney, medical examiner, who reported the death accidental, made a thorough study of the case. They found that at the bottom of the hot water tank was a faucet which dripped occasionally. The gas heater nearby had a long lever on its shutoff jet to make it more convenient and easier to reach. Alone in his house at the time, Mr. Smith is believed by police to have bent over to tighten the faucet to prevent its dripping and apparently hit his head against the shutoff lever opening it and was unable to straighten up again because of a back ailment from which he had suffered for some time. Many times when he bent over, he couldn't straighten himself for an hour or more, police learned. Dr. Perney reported that when Mr. O'Neill entered the home and smelled gas, he investigated, found the jets closed on the gas range in the kitchen, and then reached for the lever on the heater, but instead he contacted the body of Mr. Smith. A native of this city, Mr. Smith worked for a time at Landers, Frary, and Clark, before he engaged in the restaurant business with William McEnroe in a building on Main Street opposite Commercial Street. During the 20 years they were in business, the restaurant was one of the most popular in the city, and it became the favorite eating place of sportsmen, athletes, and persons well-known about town. When a young man, he was a well-known baseball player. Retiring about 1920, Mr. Smith traveled extensively and visited Ireland and other places. He spent some winters in Florida, but remained in the city this year. Mr. Smith was a lifelong member of the St. Mary's Church and the YMTAB Society. Funeral services will be held Thursday morning at the home at an hour to be announced by the M.J. Kennedy Company. Burial will be in the family plot in St. Mary's Old Cemetery. Due to Holy Week, a requiem mass for the repose of his soul will be celebrated tomorrow. It was a strange accident. I read back through it, and I see that the elderly Mr. Smith must have, according to the most obviously likely scenario, felt his back seize up, fell to the floor, and rolled completely under the gas range with no stray hand or foot poking out for Mr. O'Neill to see. For when Mr. O'Neill smelled gas, he investigated, and when he reached for the lever on the heater, he was surprised to have instead contacted the body of Mr. Smith. When Mr. O'Neill investigated, he found the faucet at the bottom of the hot water tank was closed. So that means Mr. Smith must have decided to close the faucet that must have been dripping instead of asking one of the other men in the house to get it. So, despite his bad back, he must have bent far over to close it, cocking his head to one side after he must have lowered his head below his knee so that his head was under the gas shutoff lever. And, once one hones in on the simplest possible explanation, it becomes obvious that he stood up so quickly from that position in which his back was deeply contorted 
that his head must have knocked against the lever, pushing the lever up against its natural resistance to open the gas valve. And then, of course, Mr. Smith had obviously either blacked out or suddenly threw his back out with such devastating effects that facing the water heater and the gas heater as he was, he must have fallen to his side, flopped over, and rolled sideways neatly under the open gas valve on the heater so he couldn't be seen by someone like his roommate, Mr. O'Neill. Mr. Smith must have blacked out or been paralyzed so completely by his bad back that he was unable to reach up just the few inches it would take to close the shutoff valve. And so it had obviously been an accident then. It's worth mentioning that Mr. Smith was well-known to persons well-known about town, and his restaurant that had been beloved for 20 years, especially by local celebrities and cops, had been just a block from the police station. A lifelong member of St. Mary's Church and the Young Men's Total Abstinence and Benevolent Society, Mr. Smith was overcome by death purely by chance on Holy Monday the day after Reverend Trainer gave the annual Sermon on the Glory of when Jesus rode a borrowed ass over the olive branches and the palm fronds that the people had laid down before him in a path to the gate of mercy, into Jerusalem, the passage through eternal death and the waking to eternal life. Due to Holy Week, I read, a requiem mass for the repose of his soul will be celebrated tomorrow. When Mr. Smith died, he was stood over by many men. First, as he lay twisted up and slack on the kitchen floor, he was stood over by Mr. O'Neill, four policemen, and the medical examiner, all with somber grief and the sort of respect that compels them to make up some story for how he hadn't meant to do that to himself, because a good man would never do that to himself. How can we make sense of the suicide of a good man, a man who is respected or beloved? We can see that act of the four policemen and the medical examiner as an act of compassion. Imagine the four cops standing over him and thinking out the story of his death, and the medical examiner soberly giving that story its final official shape, and we can read into the scene something none of them ever had to say out loud, that they should see it as an accident so his whole life wouldn't be read into that last suicidal act. I see compassion in that. Many people are inclined to see the man who killed himself as a failure at life, even if much of his life was good to him. Absolutely no one has the standing to judge, but still he would be judged, and his memory would always have this tragic cast, even if much of his life was good. They could shield him from that. Of course, to deny that it was suicide would be to deny his autonomy, but you could see how it might be meant as a compassionate act. And it should be said, it would allow him the full exercise of his right to a full Catholic funeral mass, 
where Mr. Smith was stood over by the hundreds who filed up from their pews to bestow upon him the grace of their final witness. If you consider the two pieces of John Smith's story, the two strips of newsprint on the green field of the blotter, and you relax your focus slightly from the lines of text themselves, you can see how the spaces between words trickle down sometimes across several lines. You see that trickle of space split into two or three cascading streams of white that each turn and split and split again before they break and dissipate against the top of a long word, where they spill out into the pool of space after the half-line end of the paragraph. You can read the story of a life like that. I read John Smith's death as a last intentional act. His life was long, and the pain or exhaustion of being alive seems to have become too much. I don't know, and I can't know, what his life came to mean to him. If he saw himself as the community seems to have seen him, that is, nostalgically, and his life was wholly in the past, I don't know. I don't know what he had left. We can only speculate, but imagine the streams of negative space that wound through him over the years and finally spilled out. That's how I read Dr. Morad's first suicide. In 1941, when John Smith died, 69,000 people lived in New Britain. A study that spring by the Department of Labor found that people at all income levels in New Britain read the daily newspaper at rates higher than in any other middle-sized city in America. The study said families, rich or poor, insist upon the daily newspaper. The main newspaper in town, which was printed every day except Sunday, the New Britain Herald, had an average daily circulation of 20,000. If we assume conservatively that people shared the paper enough that there were three readers for every two people who bought one, then we find that something like 60% of all the men and women in the city of New Britain saw the story of John Smith's death. The story of his death was read in offices, factory lunchrooms, saloons, social clubs, the barracks of newly arrived war workers, rooming houses, and homes on every street of the city. 30,000 people read that story of death, and they read what they wanted or needed to read into it. Dr. Morad, who was now 36, was compelled for the first time to reach for his scissors and clip a suicide story out. Maybe he'd already resolved in the days before to save the next one he saw. Or maybe he was moved by something he saw in John Smith's story like how easily suicide can be repressed. Or maybe he actually knew the man, I don't know, but a prominent lawyer read the story of his death, as did a mailman who served in the last war, a hundred seamstresses, and a woman who found the newspaper crumpled up the next afternoon in her husband's tavern when the place was nearly empty. 
did the example of John Smith for any of them loosen the cords that bound the barely constrained thoughts of their own death? Six days later, Dr. Morad and everybody else in town read this. Woman in hospital after taking poison. Action follows quarrel with husband over drinking, police report. Mrs. Anna Wasik, 38, wife of Joseph Wasik of 68 Hartford Avenue, is in a critical condition at New Britain General Hospital following a family argument early yesterday when, according to police, she swallowed the contents of a two-and-a-half-ounce bottle of strong disinfectant. She was found moaning on the floor of her room about 4 a.m. by Fortunat Zamier and R. Zilker, two rumors. When Sergeant William J. Graybeck and policeman Edwin C. Wolfer arrived, the former, realizing what had happened, forced some milk into her mouth as first aid treatment. About 3 a.m., Policemen Stephen Poplowski and John Schweiger heard screams on Hartford Avenue, and they came upon Mrs. Wasik, scantily clad and in her stocking feet. They calmed her down and took her home, where her husband said he would care for her, they reported. Wasik told police later, after a time, Mrs. Wasik insisted on renewing the argument, and he left the home. He said their quarrel was over drinking. Policeman Poplowski and Schweiger reported Wasik was sober when they took Mrs. Wasik home. The doctor tore that story neatly out from the middle of an inside page. He wrote the date on it, 4-1441, and he wrote the number two in the corner to show it was the second suicide story in his new collection. She was moaning. She was scantily clad and in her stocking feet. A sergeant forced some milk into her mouth. It was a family argument, a sordid little quarrel over drinking. Anna's misery is domestic and unserious. She could have died, and they're sneering at her. That's how I read it. She's portrayed as sexualized and mad with hysteria. Her misery is ridiculous, and everything about her life is contemptible even how she tried to end it. She's surrounded by contemptuous men who rescue her just to degrade her. Where can she find dignity in any of this? That's how I read it. But 30,000 people all around town read her story in their own ways. Some might have wondered, why drink disinfectant? But others instinctively understood the disinfectant is a thin, bright spirit that cleans as it burns and purifies as it kills. What it leaves behind is perfect. And who can ever know what channels that idea, that dangerous and seductive idea, might burn through another person's mind? How awful it is to know that the bottle is always right there on the shelf day after day, month after month. On the second anniversary of Anna's attempt, in fact, there's a story in the Herald about Mrs. Lillian Cavanaugh, 25 of 51 Prospect Street, that's headlined, A Strange Bride Says She Took Disinfectant. 
On the back of that short clipping, I see an ad for the local premiere that same day of the movie Silver Queen at the Strand Theater. Priscilla Lane is the most beautiful, most daring, most dangerous woman on the Barbary Coast. In the poster in the lobby of the Strand, Priscilla Lane is scantily clad. She wears a form-fitting, backless, strapless dress that rises in the front only enough to raise, press, and cover each breast with supple cloth and contour lines of rhinestones. Her bust is almost entirely bare, so the two strands of diamonds around her neck dangle an enormous pendant unimpeded toward her décolletage. Her blonde hair is piled high in rows of precise curls, and she's the best poker player in the West. The Strand Theater on Main Street sat 2,000 people. As the New Britain Herald put it in a 1980s story headlined, Strand Theater Raising Ends Era of Hollywood's Glitter in New Britain, the Strand opened on Armistice Day in 26 with W.C. Fields, one of the top comedians of the day, unlocking the floodgates of laughter for an enthusiastic audience. A tide of moviegoers, including many invited guests, flowed through its ornate and brilliantly lighted entrance corridor, expressing admiration for the decor and elegance. On the other side of the ad for Priscilla Lane and Silver Queen, Mrs. Lillian Cavanaugh, 25 of 51 Prospect Street, remained critically ill the day after she drank disinfectant. It was reported the Kavanaugh separated about two weeks ago, a month after their marriage, and that the husband visited the wife briefly last night. Soon after he departed, Mrs. Kavanaugh, police learned, left her room, and on entering an adjacent room, told a woman she had just taken poison and slumped to the floor. Seven weeks after that, on Wednesday, June 9, the New Britain Herald said this. After Mrs. Anna Wasik, 40, of 66 Hartford Avenue, allegedly swallowed disinfectant last night, she was forced to drink a quart of milk by policeman John Zielinski and then was taken to New Britain General Hospital, where today it was said she is recovering. Captain George C. Ellinger received a telephone call and policemen George Spooner, Leo Wren, and John P. Kranzett went to the tavern at 68 Hartford Avenue, where they found policeman Zielinski attending to Mrs. Wasik. Policeman Zielinski reported he found Mrs. Wasik on the floor. There had been a family argument, he said. She'd done it again. She'd come downstairs to her husband's tavern this time to show everyone what he'd made her do. The men stood back to watch her as they drank their beer, and she had to be nursed with milk from the bottle like a baby. It's pathetic this time, the joke goes, so the headline says, Policeman prescribes milk chaser, saves disinfectant drinker. The joke is that she's so ridiculous that the cop has to be a doctor and a bartender both. She was hysterical, weak, and too womanly. She'd even use a cleaning product to try to kill herself. They forced her to drink a quart of milk. A quart of milk is a lot of milk, but it wasn't enough to drown the urge. For the very next evening, the Herald reports, 
Woman drinks iodine. Despondent over domestic trouble, according to police, Mrs. Frances Lanza of 157 Broad Street swallowed a dose of iodine in the women's room at a Main Street theater last night as she was accompanied by her two small children. Report was made to Captain George C. Ellinger at headquarters at 6.25 o'clock, and policemen George Spooner, John Aoudi, and Robert Bruce responded. Mrs. Lanza was taken to New Britain General Hospital. She was not seriously affected and was allowed to leave within a few minutes. Later, she was taken to the home of relatives in Southington and a police cruiser. The children would be free. She bought a ticket for herself to Cinderella Swings It with Guy Kibbe and Gloria Warren, or Beyond the Blue Horizon with Dorothy L'Amour and Cartoon Shorts. Before they could get seats or popcorn or a Clark bar, they'd go to the ladies' lounge, where she produced from her purse a small bottle. She unstopped it and took a deep sip. With just one taste, like a tiny vial of oil poured to calm a troubled sea, it should be a liquor that imbues a wretched life with warm release. She slumped to the carpet as her babies screamed and stamped their feet. All the people rushed to be around her. They gave her an emetic, of which she took a bitter sip. She could never go home. So they drove her in a cruiser with two uniformed drivers to another town. The door opened. They helped her up the walk and up the stoop. And the door was full of faces, which might be or might as well be love. Five months later, the thin, bright spirit of poison couldn't cut it anymore, and she was sick of being saved. So Anna Wasik smashed a milk bottle in her kitchen and carved her arms with shards of glass and bled herself almost to death. But would you believe she lived another 42 years after that? Considering suicide, please stop for a moment and look at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Think about it. At that site, you can find resources and how to contact someone who can help you talk things out. That's suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Or you can call them at 1-800-273-TALK. For more about this project, including notes on this episode, please visit envelopeofsuicides.com and follow at Ben Morad. I'm Stephanie Barr. Thank you. Thank you.